Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another Lights, Camera, Sports podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. So happy to have you on board. I know we've been talking a lot of Boston College and college football, but with this little interim between the end of the college football season and the bowl season, I thought it'd be great to kind of branch out. And with that, we have a very, very exciting guest here today, John D. Lucas. He wrote, haven't they suffered enough? The story and the timeline, the life of the great Beano Cook, who you might know him as ESPN, college football commentator, longtime SID at University of Pittsburgh and working at CBS. Just a long, long media career. And he had a great relationship with uh, John Lucas. So we're going to talk to him and kind of get that storyline and promote this book. It's really a good story about college football. So with that, we welcome John. John, first of all, thank you so much for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on here, thrilled to be talking to you, and thrilled to be talking about Bino. Okay, and your book came out, Haven't They Suffered Enough? Uh, all about the life and times of Bino Cook. But first, let us let me just, i like to kind of examine you and t- you know, to learn about your timeline. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And, you know, you mentioned the book, but tell our listeners, how did you become involved and uh, become connected with Bino Cook? Well, you know what? I, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, a small town called Export. That's about, south, about 20 miles, 20 minutes southeast of, uh, of uh, Pittsburgh downtown. And uh, I wrote Bino a letter when I was in high school. And uh, it was just sort of one of those things where I figured, you know, he was a local, you know, local guy maybe he could help me out in terms of uh answering some questions i had i wanted to get into sports media i wanted to cover college football be a sports writer but maybe do some some tv and radio as well and i figured you know who better than that guy who who kind of embodied all those uh all those things and i sent him a letter to a a local uh outfit here called kbl it was uh uh kind of a regional cable network and sure enough about two weeks later a letter came back to me in the mail from Bino told me to call him at a certain time gave me his home phone number and uh, we had a great great conversation in the introduction to the book I mentioned kind of the things we talked about you know how we got to know each other and it's, it's kind of humorous in a way the things he told me because you got I got a you know a right off the bat introduction to Bino Cook's you know eccentricity and his, his unique character and uh, and we just we just went from there. We got to be very very good friends. He became my professional mentor. And then uh, next thing I know, I'm you know he asked me to write this book with him. And you know a couple years after he died, I finally got it finished. So that's that's the Reader's Digest condensed version. Yeah, I was about to say it's over numerous years. You know he had high compliments for you. You know Bino was never married, never had kids. He kind of basically called you his son as well for him as well. So you had a very close relationship. I'm sure developed over uh, numerous years. And like I said, from that first phone call, and then we got, you know, we got to know each other a little bit more, and, and he kind of hired me to do some work for him. You know, I was doing a lot of research in terms of college football and different things, and then, you know, I got into, uh, you know, writing some material for him, and I likened it to, it's it's like writing for Rodney Dangerfield or some other comedian. <laughs> you, know, you know what they're, 
what their brand of humor is. And I knew, I knew the history. I knew, you know, World War II history, college football history. And I kind of, you know, whether this is a good thing or not that a, you know, 18, 19 year old kid is thinking like a 60 year old man, you know, who knows? We were on the same wavelength, but I was able to come up with stuff that he got a kick out of, you know, it made him laugh. And he used it on the air. He used it on podcasts and the chats and things like that. And I think that that sort of convinced him that, you know, hey, maybe this guy, like I said, we're on the same wavelength. He could, he could finally get this book done. And I think that, you know, he had, he had tried to get it done many times over the years and just, uh, you know, partnered with a couple other writers and couldn't, couldn't capture his voice and he couldn't exactly say what he wanted to say. And I think that was kind of because, you know, he just, he never really had a writing personality. He had an on-air personality and he was great in the moment and he would come up with things sort of on the fly or else, you know, the things I would write for him, he would rehearse and things like that. But he just, he couldn't sit in front of a typewriter or, you know, a computer and, and let those, let those thoughts flow out. He was more spontaneous and couldn't do the transitions and things, but I had, you know, kind of a gift to do both worlds and tie it all in together. So that's that's kind of how it worked out. Yeah, and then he kind of mentioned that in your book that you wrote, but he, you could tell he was speaking from his perspective. Um, just about not, not loving writing, be more of a commentator and SID behind the scenes. But just give us, you know, give us a, that. I'm interested in the timeline of the book because Bino died in 2012. Just talk about at the end of the later stages of his life when you guys talked about possibly doing books, starting it, and then finishing it now. Just how that all timeline come together. Well, you know, I think it started basically from what he explained to me and from the earliest notes that, that he gave me. Uh, you know, he was working uh, as a publicist for the Miami Dolphins. And he spent one year there. And as you'll read in the book, it's because he couldn't get along with Don Shula. It was just too much of a, you know, antagonistic relationship. And I think he got this idea that he was going to, you know, his life in, as an SID at Pitt. Uh, you know, as a college football fan, doing publicity, you know, and for ABC, which he was there about eight years under Rune Arledge. And then, you know, he, he had this idea, he had this, you know, he had no idea at the time, though, that his life was basically, you know, kind of between careers. This is long before he ever went on television, you know, as a college football commentator. So it was right around 1975 that he got the idea he was going to put this book together. Wow. He, kind of bounced around, did some other things. He, he worked for Vista, which was the, the domestic counterpart for the Peace Corps, and which was really off, you know, for anybody who's done any sports or anything to just kind of completely go off in a different direction. That's, you know, he did that. Uh, you know, it's an interesting part of the book. And then he came back to CBS, and, you know, he, he was putting all these notes together. And, and you see these things, it's kind of interesting. I have these stacks of, you know, manila file folders and, and all these things. And he wrote the notes on the back of, releases from the Dolphins in the 1974 season, uh, you know, TV show releases from CBS. He had all this, you know, spare paper, you know, and you see on one side, it talks about what's going to be on Dallas that week in 1978, <laughs> and his notes are on the back. And so it's, you get a, a good timeline of where he was in his life, where these stories were coming from, and all these encounters with all these famous people in the media and sports, politics, entertainment, etc. And, uh, you know, so he, he was he was compiling all this stuff, and then and then, like I said, you know, I got to know him when I was a senior in high school, and that was early uh, 1995. And then I graduated from college from Notre Dame in uh, May of '99, and it was right around that time that we got together, and he said, "Hey, you're going to help me write this book." Meanwhile, I had done very little in terms of yeah, your college graduate. I came out there as a writer, but I think he just felt that I was 
you know, the, the, the best possible person that he could partner up on this. And I'm, I'm thankful he chose me. And, you know, we kind of started it from there and we went off and did a couple things. And, you know, we worked, it was on and off for a couple of years, Mike. We, you know, we would do a chapter or two and he was a perfectionist. So we would go back in and we would change a lot of things around and fix it. And then I got on, I wrote a book. It was a World War II story. And I, I actually worked for ESPN myself. And, you know, so we kind of worked on each other's schedules. And that ended up happening was we, we had a few opportunities for some publishing deals. and Some people wanted us to do it. And then he got kind of, I don't want to say cold feet, but he, you know, there were certain things they wanted him to change around. And he had a very, he had a very, very definite uh, idea of how the book should read, how it was going to be laid out. And I think, you know, since you've read it, you understand that it's, you know, Bino was an unconventional person. So an unconventional person is only going to write an unconventional book. <laughs> yes. There's, you know, different chapters that don't really line up. There are some things, you know, on sports betting or expense accounts and things that, you know, that don't follow a linear fashion. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons that he wanted to do things his way. And that's why, you know, once after he passed away, I promised him I would, you know, I would get it done for him. I, I couldn't say when, but, you know, it would it would happen sooner or later. And I would do it the way he wanted it done. And so that was, you know, that was a big thing. And I think I accomplished that. And then so fast forward for recent times, how did you kind of get over the finish line now these years later? How did that all go about with the publisher and try to get it done? Well, you know, I mentioned uh, in the introduction again, you know, it's kind of one of those, you got to read the book to understand the whole thing. Uh you know, I approached some of the same people who had some interest, and they were kind of, you know, they kind of waffled. Hey, you know, Bino's been gone a couple of years. We don't think people will remember him or, you know, and it kind of made me upset. You know, the people were just very dismissive right off the bat. And then in uh, 2019, ESPN came out with their big 150th anniversary college football special. And I, I thought the thing was very, very well done. I mean, they covered almost all the bases. They hit all the the great teams, the great coaches, you know, all the themes and stuff like that. But when it came to mentioning Bino, they, they really, you know, it was like fumbling the ball at the one-yard line You're going into the end zone. They, they really screwed it up. Really? I don't think they gave him the, the attention and the respect and the adulation that he deserved because, uh, you know, knowing, you know, up in your area where you're from, I mean, ESPN wouldn't have been anything without college football. And, you know, that empire wouldn't have got started without college football. And Bino Cook was the one who really got the ball rolling there. And so that, that was another thing that kind of made me angry. And I said, you know, I'm going to get back into this. I'm going to get this book out for him. And so I approached a couple other people, friends of his, because we had, we had probably, you know, there's 11 chapters that we ended up with. And we had a good uh, anywhere from a half to probably 75% finished in, in various forms. And I just had to go through and, you know, rewrite and, play around with some things, but there were some other notes and stuff that he had that I had no idea about these stories and everybody else had passed away. But thankfully there were people like Tim Brando and Ernie Corsi, uh, you know, that, that, that knew these stories and they could sort of translate the notes and, and fill me in. So that's how I kind of finally put the whole thing together. So we had been working on it, you know, long story short for, you know, between both of us 50 years and I wow. spent a good 20 years on and off on it. Good. So you were fired up, it sounds like, after you, you thought that ESPN didn't treat Bino right with the 150th anniversary, and that sounds like it motivated it to get it done. Yeah, it, it definitely did. It was one of those things, especially when you're, you know, I became very close to him, like you even said, you know, he called me a surrogate son at times, and I think that sometimes, you know, that was, uh, 
you know, in a loving, positive fashion. But other times it was more like, oh, I got to bail you out again. I got to get you tickets. You know, he would try to set me up on dates. He was just a great, <laughs> you know, a great overall guy and a great friend. But, uh, you know, I felt like I, I owed it to him. I mean, he really helped me get my start in terms of, you know, working working at ESPN for a bit and all the places that I wrote for and books I published and things. And, and, and I think that was kind of his nature. He was, you know, as an SID, he was, you know, you're, back then it was more of a gig where you're, you're trying to get good publicity for your athletes, your coaches, and your teams. Now it's more of a damage control job. You want to keep things, you know, yeah. keep things out of the press. And so he, by nature, he was he was a helper. He was trying to do do right and do you know help help other people. And I figured you know it's about time somebody did that for him, even though he's gone. But I figured you know that's that's his legacy, and that was I was entrusted with his legacy, and he gave me all of his notes and papers and files and all wow. that stuff. And you know, so I did feel I did feel motivated and you know I guess obligated to uh, you know to go forward with this and do it right. Last question about the production of the book before we get into Bino. Was it difficult to write from his perspective, uh, you know, close to 10 years after he's been gone now, or did it automatically kind of come back to you? Could you hear him talking, like you said? You know what? I, that's a great question, Mike, and, and, and the answer is uh, yes and yes. Uh, it, it was difficult at first because, you know, I, I'd done some other things and published, you know, in, in you know, my own voice. Like I said, I wrote a World War II book called Escape from Dubai did a documentary and I was, you know, contributing various things, ESPN.com and a lot of college football stuff and magazines and things like that. But once I got back into the material, I mean, it's, it's, it was literally like riding a bike. It came, it came right back to me. Plus I had all those tapes. I mean, I recorded all of our conversations. Okay. Wow. And, you know, so I literally had his voice in my ear. I'm and, sure that made you know, a big difference. Was, yeah. It was great to sort of reconnect with him. You know, and I mean, it felt like, you know, at times it was it was like I was sitting here there with him, you know, because we, we would do the, these interviews, uh, you know, later on in life when, you know, his health kind of went downhill. We would, you know, he didn't really want to go out much. So we'd do it at his apartment in, in Pittsburgh. But a lot of times we would go to a restaurant somewhere. We would go to, you know, Roos Chris Steakhouse because he had all these, you know, gift cards and things that people would give him. And we would, you know, spend three hours there in the back room just chatting it up and, you know, discussing and going through notes and things like that. And a lot of the other things were, you know, car trips that we took. And so, I mean, the, the hard part of it was kind of organizing the material, doing the transitions and, and things like that, because it, it, I think when you read it, it, it sounds, I mean, it goes boom, 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 flows there. It's, it's, it's all in a linear fashion, but that wasn't the way that I got the material. So, you know, there, there was the work that I did was kind of putting it all together. And I came up with, you know, a lot of his, you know his lines and things himself because I knew the way he the way he thought and there was ideas that he had and I was able to sort of capitalize on them. I mean it's kind of funny there there are dozens of I guess segments or things parts of the conversations we had on tape where he would kind of fumble with a line a little bit just like he he would do in those outtakes. Yes, you've ever seen them. Yes, you know his famous uh, you know the ESPN 25th anniversary and things like that, and and it wouldn't come out. And I would either finish it for him or he would say, you know what I'm trying to say. And I would laugh and say, yes, I will, you know, I will write it the way you're trying to say it. So in other <laughs> words, I, I knew what he was trying to say. I knew what he was thinking of, you know, and I think our, our minds were connected in that way. So that was, you know, like I said, it was a little difficult at first, but then, you know, once I got into it, you know, and that's basically all I did for probably the last two years. So, you know, it was the 
hard part was actually when I finally finished it was writing the intro in my own voice. It's sort of going back, you know, starting from go at that point. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consultant firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. Very, very interesting. Okay, last couple of minutes here. Let's just get into the life of Bino Cook. What a life it was. You mentioned about it. First of all, tell our listeners how he got his name Bino. Uh, it's an interesting story. He, he, he was born in San Francisco. Uh, and that's where his father's side of the family was from. And then they moved uh, out east and lived in, in Boston. And they were just outside of Boston. He spent a couple years there, the early, you know, formative years of his life there. And then they moved to Pittsburgh, and this was probably when Bino was about six or seven years old, 1937, 1938. And uh, he pulls up at the new house in Pittsburgh, and they explain, and I think the town was called Duxbury. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Duxbury, just south of Boston, south shore. Okay. And, uh, you know, the people, you have these guys in Pittsburgh are looking around. They have no idea where that's from. You know, you might, you might as well have said, you know, outside of Paris somewhere. <laughs> You know, then, then, you know, his mother or his father said, Boston. Oh, and one guy goes, you know, it just dawns on him, like the baked beans. Okay. That's funny. That moment on, the little kid standing there became beans. Wow. And it just, you know, that became his nickname. And uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, in, in, in TV, uh, in sports, still call him beans. They refer him to that. But uh, beans became Beano. Beano, yeah. A year or so later, and then... That's it's it's history. That's a great TV name, Bino Cook. It just kind of flows off, you know, right off your mouth. That's a great name. Definitely, no. And he, he mentions that in the book. I mean, he 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 gives credit to that name, that nickname. His mother hated it, by the way. Understand <laughs> it. And uh, you know, his first name obviously was Carol, and that was you know he said that caused a lot of problems for him. Uh, you know, growing up, it wasn't a common name for a boy. But uh, you know, he said he was thankful for the nickname. Uh, you know, for growing up in grade school when he went into the service and things like that. But he also said that, you know, it, it did have a different, it had a ring to it. And there was, just like you said, that, you know, the way it, the way it sounded, the way it rolled off people's tongues, I think that it was, uh, it really helped him in terms of his, in his career, you know, starting in publicity. And then as he, you know, got on and, you know, did a lot of TV and radio, I think it really, you know, it made sense. You think of these famous people like, okay, Jimmy the Greek, you know, you have all these other nicknames, you know, there's, it fits. No question about it. And then, you know, Bino grows, uh, goes to the move of the family to Pittsburgh. He graduates from the University of Pittsburgh in 1954 and then serves two years in the U.S. Army. That was, you know, obviously required back then. He kind of talks about his time, how he just wanted to get through that time period, and then he returned back to Pittsburgh. So kind of a you know interesting start to his life right after graduation, too. Could not really evolved with college football, but the U.S. Army. Right, and you mentioned that. I mean, the, you know, the draft was in, was in uh, full force at that time, so it was a, you know, a national requirement. And I guess the big thing is, you know, I mean, he's very proud of his, his service in the Army, but if anybody ever really knew Bino Cook, he was very, very independent, <laughs> He had an anti-authoritarian streak. He, I mean, he, he never got married, I think, because he didn't like taking orders from anybody. I don't think he could have. <laughs> I don't think him and a wife could have coexisted. 
He was just very, you know, his own type of person. I mean, the guy you saw on TV, you know, that came up with the funny liners and, you know, very eccentric. That, that was the way he was in private. And I think he was just, from the early age, he was, you know, an only child. He was used to doing things his way. And all of a sudden, you had to take orders in the Army and, you know, march around and do this stuff. And he, like you said, he just wanted to he just wanted to be done with it and kind of get on with his life's work. You know, and that's what's interesting. He served in Pittsburgh SID for about nine, ten years. You know, then he works for the Dolphins for a year and then goes back to ABC. So you mentioned, too, his independent streak uh, in visionary was quite apparent. And then mid-career, he volunteers with Vista in Florida. I think it was right outside Gainesville in northern Florida. And it just shows you how, you know, he loved college football, but he was also very diversified in his thought. He, he was. You know, he, he, he wanted to, you know, be in sports from an early age. And I think that was the, that was the single connection. But he didn't really have – he didn't really have an idea of just exactly what he wanted to do. And I think, you know, there was well, – you know, hey, a lot of people, it's, it's great. They figure out what they want to do with their lives when they're 16, you know what I mean, or they're 18. Yes. And go right for it. I think he bounced around a bit. I mean, I know the one thing that he – he wanted to be a sports writer more than anything on earth. He wanted to be Red Smith. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a columnist. You know, I think he was sort of enamored with that, you know, the old sports writing lifestyle. Grantland Rice, those open-air press boxes, the polo grounds, you know, and all those big old-time college football games and things like that. And, you know, he wanted to be a part of that or a continuation of that. But he just, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you know, early on, he just didn't have that, that gift to, to write. He wasn't good on deadline. He wasn't able to just string together, you know, all those you know, the clever lines and the, the leads and, you know, all the different segues and things like that. And I think that so he, he sort of stayed on the periphery. You know, he, if he couldn't be a sports writer, he was going to be around them as an SID. And I think it was that that connection. And, you know, so he stayed in athletics and, you know, and did those things until he finally, you know, it wasn't until after he did his stints, uh, you know, as a, in publicity, you know, working for, you know, in college athletics, pro football, Vista, and then, you know, he had two different stints with ABC and CBS Sports where he was, even if his career had ended just there, I think it would have been very successful and interesting. But he, he, he knew he was capable of doing something else and he wanted to be on TV and he knew that he could, you know, he could share material that was different than the, what other people, you know, that were on the medium were doing. And I think, uh, you know, he, he pushed himself to try to accomplish that. And yeah. I know that I'm glad he did. And I think, I think all of us are glad that we got to hear his voice, you know, on, on college football for, for all those years. That's a great segue to my next question. By the way, how great was it Pittsburgh with great timing winning the ACC this past weekend? <laughs> yeah, it, it sure was. I mean, I, I know he was thrilled, uh, you know, when, when Pitt got in there, you know, that sort of first round of realignment that was going on, you know, a couple of years before he died, he was glad that, that Pitt found a home in the ACC. And he thought that, uh, you know, it would it would really help out, obviously, you know, improve the basketball program, but, you know, it would help out football as well. I don't think he he would have thought it would have taken this long, you know, to bring a, to bring a conference championship, uh, you know, to Oakland, but, uh, you know, it worked out and I'm, the whole time I was watching it, I was, you know, thinking about him. Well said. All right. Last couple of minutes here. Let's talk about Bino's on air career. And, you know, you mentioned right in the previous question, what I thought was really amazing. One of my favorite parts of the book 
uh, about your in your book about Bino, and it came apparent, at least to me, was his self confidence. And I, he was either Fred Cherkinian of CBS Golf or Rune Arledge of ABC. I remember he went up and asked him basically just to be on air. And, um, and I think you wrote about it too, from his perspective. Uh, he said, you know, no one in the United States knows more people has a bigger network of college football uh, than me. You're talking about Bino himself. And it was just so, it was almost refreshing to hear. He was just like, he left nothing to spare. It was just like, you know, I belong on air and I should be talking to, and I can help you guys out. Just kind of give our listeners that whole story in that time frame. I found it very interesting. Yeah, you know, Mike, I mean, Bino Cook was the most blunt person on the face of the earth. If you, you know, there was no, like I said, I mean, he was extremely helpful to me in my career, you know, and a great guy. He called me his surrogate son and I consider him a surrogate father. You know, one of those regards. But, you know, he could, he would tell me if, you know, if I was wrong or if I was off base or whatever. And I mean, and he wouldn't, there was no beating around the bush with him, with anything he did. And I think everybody that really knew him well would, uh, would validate that statement. And that he was the same way professionally. And I think that that went back to all the way, you know, when he started out at Pitt, he was very honest and forthright with his bosses. And I think they respected him for that. He was the same way with the members of the media he worked with. He was very, you know, he honesty was the best policy there. And I think he was truthful when he, when, you know, he, he went to the guys at CBS after they got the, the college football package in 81. You know, he said, look, he said, I'm, you guys have no idea how to do college football. <laughs> You've been doing, you know, the NFL for years. He said, but I know every stadium. I know every SID. I know every athletic director, every coach. You know, I have, I have more confidential informants than Kojak. He said, I'm, I'm, and I know where to put the cameras. <laughs> and, you know, but they didn't, they didn't really want to give him the opportunity. So he basically, you know, told them, told them where to go and then went to Rune Arledge, who was, you know, one of the big influencing factors, a big hero in his life. And I think Rune, you know, being a visionary, he looked at Peter and said, you know what, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, you know, we now that, you know, we have to share college football, it's, you know, split package, we have to do something different. So if you're going to do something different, maybe you're going to hire somebody different. And I think that was, you know, the genesis of how his on-air career got started. He was, he was just very blunt. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, would sort of, especially nowadays, he might more beg for a job. He wasn't really that kind of guy. He just basically said, you know, I'm, you know, you need to hire me. It's not, it's not, you know, that I want to work. You need to hire me and here's why. And that's just the way he was. And it, and it worked out because, you know, because he wasn't an ex athlete, you know, not traditional play by play guy. So he kind of had a little niche role and it, he made it really work out well for himself on, on air. He, he sure did. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, he mentions this and, you know, and I, I kind of did the research, you know, if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's, Howard Cosell was the first guy that didn't have any, yes, you know, real professional training, and you know he he didn't like Bino always said, you know, we didn't we didn't get coffee at some station in Iowa, you know, we weren't interns anywhere, we didn't work our way up, we just we we came in from outside the system, and I think it was him, Cosell, Jimmy the Greek, because he had the gambling uh, experience, and you know that's that was basically unheard of. You you were either like you said, you were either you know a, a traditional play by play guy, you know you. you your way up and then or else you were a former player a former coach and then later on as you know things sort of change especially with the nfl today uh which uh, my friend rich podowski was one of bino's roommates wrote a great he's a great book that just came out uh it's called you're looking live he mentions you know how when they hired phyllis george you 
know, and now all of a sudden you had women talking football on TV. There was, you know, now you had different options for people that, uh, you know, that normally you wouldn't have ever heard their voices. You know, it, it would just be like a guy at the end of the bar. Man, he's, he's funny. He's interesting. But nobody would have ever thought to put all these people from all these various backgrounds in front of a camera. And I think that uh, now, you know, that, you know, those people had a little bit more vision. Some of the people like Rune Arledge, you know, they're sitting at the top of these operations and said, you know what, we need to take a chance like this because we've been doing things the same way for, you know, for how many years. And I think Bino was a beneficiary of that. So it was his personality plus the timing was probably right for him. Okay, you mentioned Howard Cassell. You got that's a great you great point. You got to tell my listeners uh, what Howard thought of Bino and what was uh, Howard's nickname for Bino. You know, Bino and Howard were, were very close, and uh, you know they got to know each other when Bino went when he was at ABC uh, as a publicist the first time from '66 to '74, and then when he came back and he was on the air there later on, and uh, they were. He was kind of a confidant for Howard. He would come into his office and they would just sit there, and, you know, kick up and, you know, and bullshit for, for a couple hours. They went out to lunch all the time and they were, they got to be pretty close. And I think Bino got to, you know, see a side of Howard that a lot of people didn't get to see uh, and vice versa. And one of uh, Howard Cosell's great lines that nobody's ever heard, but it's in the book, is he called Bino an unmade bet. <laughs> and that was, that was kind of, you know, once I thought about it, you know, being I said, well, okay, we have to get that in there. I said, oh, yeah, that's that's great. You know, it occurred to me that there was probably a double meaning there because Howard Cosell was a very intelligent guy. He, you know, he wasn't just playing one on TV with all the big words and everything else. He, he was a very smart individual. And I think that, you know, when he said unmade bed, a lot of people laugh and they think, yeah, because if he knew Bino Cook, he was, you know, I hate to use the word slob, but he just, he was never a clothes horse. You'd never see him on the cover of GQ. He didn't dress well. He didn't look. No, he looked like uh, you know someone. I think it was Norm Chad that you know that we we put the quote in the book that that said you know Bina looks like somebody who should be installing your cable TV, TV not on it. <laughs> and you know, so it was it was the whole you know the visual representation, the way you know Bino's character. He was the you know the odd couple guy, the sports writer. You know, it was kind of a kind of a walking mess and I you know he said I made bad and that made a lot of sense but I think the other part of it is he, he used that to sort of shield Bino or protect Bino with a little bit of a media security blanket because he knew people would come after him in terms of you know criticism and the critics when he first got put on the air and I think that was sort of Costell's way of uh insulating him against the inevitable criticism you know because he would he screwed up a lot when he was when he was on early. You know, he'd look at the wrong camera. You know, and I mean, he would get the the cues wouldn't come through. He had trouble with his earpieces and things like that. And you know, obviously, he had no training. He was no experience. He wasn't a finished product. And I think that was Howard Cosell's way of sort of insulating him from a lot of the stuff that would be coming at him. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, last couple minutes here. ESPN days. It's where you kind of came involved. Just kind of give us a scene for those times and what it was like. You know, he mentioned in the book he chose ESPN over CNN. He had an offer from Turner, CNN, Ted Turner, uh, because ESPN was closer to his house in Pittsburgh, a quicker flight, and he did not like to fly. So just give us a story of those ESPN times. Yeah, Mike, you nailed it. Uh, you know, he, he hated to fly, and I think that was – you know, we, we get into it in the book a little bit. It wasn't wasn't kind of like John Madden where he was, you know, deathly afraid of, you know, the plane crashing or anything like that. Even though he said that, you know, I hate flying because the first word you see when you come to the 
airport is terminal. You know, <laughs> what, what, how does that inspire you? It doesn't. But, uh, you know, he, he said that, you know, he hated all the stuff that went around with flying. And I think nowadays he would really go absolutely bananas with all the security lines, you know, and the parking and masks and, you know, and just, it's just mayhem. He hated everything, all that stuff that went along with it. And, uh, so he called, you know, when he was, he was trying to decide between those two gigs, he, he called uh, the airport up in Pittsburgh and talked to a lady at the ticketing counter and it was Delta Airlines. And she said, oh yeah, it's about a, you know, it's 45 minutes quicker or something like that. No connections. And, and that, that decided it for him because he didn't, he didn't want to have to deal with going back and forth from Atlanta and, uh, you know, travel was a, you know, a big thing for him. And obviously he was, you know, getting up there in age, but he just didn't want, he didn't want all the, things that went along with that and that's how he ended up in bristol believe it or not so quicker flight to hartford as well all right so and then i did he love it sounds like he really did like his espn time and working in bristol traveling back and forth and college covering college football to me he was kind of like the lee corso before lee corso in a way and i know he worked with lee but he kind of kind of created that genre let me know your thoughts you know, I, I, I really agree with you there. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he did enjoy his time there. I mean, I, I think he loved being a part of, you know, something that was new and something that was being built. So he felt like he kind of had a, I don't want to say an ownership stake or an operating, but he, you know, he felt like there was some some sweat equity involved in that. You know, he, when he was when it was, when he was at ABC, they were already an established, you know, outfit. And even when he was doing publicity for ABC and CBS, you know, that was already you know, kind of a, a done deal. They were one of the big three legacy networks. And, you know, he was obviously thrilled to be on the air at ABC when he was there. But when he went to ESPN, you know, he felt it was kind of like he was a veteran going to an expansion franchise. Gotcha. And he felt that he could he could help improve them, but he could also learn a little bit. He could help teach some of the younger people or some of the other people coming on. And I think that's that's kind of what he did when he got there. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the you know, it kind of upset me the way ESPN just glossed over his contributions. I mean, he really, you know, Dick Vitale was was the name that really brought ESPN to Providence, you know, when they got uh, college basketball. You know, it's late 70s, early 80s, and they've been doing ping pong and, you know, bass fishing tournaments and Australian rules football, and all of a sudden they had major, a major college sport. So they got basketball, their profile you know, shot up immediately. And then when they got college football, it kind of took it to the next level. And Bino was a guy who, you know, helped do that. And I think, it, you know, he, he lended ESPN the, the credibility of his name. He was a guy who wore that canary yellow sport jacket at ABC Sports, did college football. And I think that gave people, whether they liked Bino or not, they would tune in because, okay, this guy's, I know this guy, he's a familiar name. You know, he was on ABC for four years. And that landed some, some credibility, I think, to ESPN's coverage of college football. So that was, you know, a big part of it. And then, you know, like you said about uh, Lee Corso, and I think Tim Brando, Chris Fowler, those guys, especially the creation of College Game Day, he really put his stamp on that. That was a very important thing to him. He was very important. He didn't come up with the idea. You know, we need to clarify that. He gives credit to, uh, to Bill Creasy. But he said that, you know, he, he really helped build it into what it is today. And, you know, helping mentor some of those guys. And, and I even, you know, talked to Corso and he, you know, he, he agreed. He said that, uh, he said, you know, that I watched Bino sitting next to him and I picked up a lot of his act. And that, that sort of transformed into what you saw, you know, later on with the, the mascot heads and all that stuff. Because Bino did all those, you know, cute little gags and all the funny stuff. And I think that's kind of, you know, where it started. 
you know, it's it's entertainment at the end of the day. And I think Lee Corso said that too, and I'm sure Bino shared the same thing. You gotta get viewers, it's entertainment, it's sports, it's supposed to be fun. Exactly. And I, I think that was a big part of it. And it, that was always a big part of I wanna say Bino's act, but his the way he committed to co- covering the sport. You know, he took it seriously, it was his favorite sport, but he knew that you had to have fun. And that that was the I think that's the overarching message of the whole book is you know, people need to have fun with their lives. You know, you can't go to, go to work, you know, because if, uh, you know, if you hate your job on a Tuesday morning, you know what I mean, you got to find another one. That was one of his one of his big lines. And I think so he brought that fun, you know, at every place he, he worked at, and especially at ESPN. You know, that was the way he, you know, took off things. And, you know, he, he kind of went from, uh, you know, being that behind-the-scenes guy to being in front of the camera guy and hopefully – you know, some of that rubbed off onto a lot of other people. And I know that other people in the media that he worked with that are, whose paths crossed with him, you know, they, they agreed with that and they appreciated his, his outlook. Okay, John, I got to get, before we sign off here, what's your favorite Bino storage? Maybe you and him interaction, maybe behind the scenes. Is there anything that sticks out for you? Uh, do you want something that was in the book or something that was sort of, like you said, behind the scenes? What, whatever you want. wasn't included because there's, God, there's a bunch. I mean, there's really, uh, you know, I, I, I could talk for probably another hour. <laughs> well, whatever you want, anything stick out. Maybe outside of the book, I guess, this time. Uh, you know, there was, I could say, the one in the book is, is, is pretty funny in, in, you know, in terms of my, I wasn't there, but I, I just imagine the way it was or the way it went down, the way he described it was when, uh, there's a story when he meets Muhammad Ali. I thought that was that was hilarious. You've read the book, you, you know it. It's a Cosell story because, you know, Bino and Cosell were arguing. Bino, you know, we mentioned his military service. He didn't like it. He didn't have a good time. But he said, you know what, everybody had to do it. He said Elvis had to go. Is you know, is, is Muhammad Ali bigger than Elvis? And, you know, Cosell didn't agree with him. But he said, but you know what, hey, you're an American, freedom of speech, all that. You know, you're entitled to your opinion. And then Bino took it a step further and said, well, if I ever, you know, meet Muhammad Ali, I'm going to call him by his, you know, his given name, Cassius Clay, because I think it's a publicity stunt, and I'm a publicist, and I know PR better than everybody. <laughs> so Costell kind of laughed, you know, and said, this is, you know, kind of you're digging your own grave, but this is, this is fun, you know, let's go with it. <laughs> sure enough, you know, they're having their lunch, their weekly lunch, uh, I think at Mike Minutia's uh, steakhouse in New York. And Bino walks in to their normal table, and guess who's sitting there right next to Cosell? <laughs> I just imagine, you know, I just imagine, you know, you know how intimidated he was and everything else. But the line that he, you know, throws out, you know, shakes his hand. Nice to meet you, Muhammad. You know, he wasn't going to say Cassius Clay. I thought that was just, you know, total Howard Cosell, total Bino Cook. It was a great, it was a great <laughs> setup move. It was a great prank. It's that's that's the kind cool. of stu- I think that's the kind of stuff that you know that, that really made you know Bino's life life different you know what i mean and i don't think it's i don't think people like that those types of characters imagine three three of those guys sitting at a table somewhere you know what i mean I, I don't think it could happen today you know those three true american legends you know i don't think it i don't think it could be set up like that nowadays and that's just one of those things that makes you think about you know the intersection of all those different lives and careers and like i said legends you know something that really you know makes you laugh and kind of you know makes you smile when you think about that i think that sums up Bino's life you know he, he loved to tell stories and I think that's why I'm I'm thrilled to have this book finished because it's he's still telling stories like you said he's been gone nine years he's 
he's still telling stories to all of us, and hopefully everyone's enjoying it. Well, well said. My last question, you kind of mentioned it. a couple sentences. How do you want Bino to remember, be remembered today, and uh, how do you want him to be remembered in the future? I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, as that storyteller, that's that's something he wanted to be remembered as. Uh, you know, he wanted to be remembered as a fun guy, a funny guy, someone who made people laugh. That, you know, he was the Roy Rogers of, of sports media. Uh, you know, made people smile, made people laugh. But I... That's his perspective, and you know I think that the way that the book was written, the way I put everything together, we accomplished that. But the one other thing I would really like people who read the book to, you know, the big takeaway from it is, is that he was more than sort of that clown prince of college football, and he was more than the guy who, you know, fumbled through the lines and those funny outtakes that you can you can still pull up on YouTube today. You know, he he was more than that that type of character, and I think there's other things. You know, we really didn't get into it, but you, once you read the book, he had a very, very outsized uh, uh, grasp of sports media, technology, especially television, and he was in on a lot of big decisions, and I think he was a big, he was a prime mover behind a lot of major decisions, both in college football, NFL, things like that, uh, you know, rights packages and things, and I think he he deserves to get the credit for the influence that he had on on television, college football, you know, and athletics in general. And I think people, you know, your listeners that read the book will, will have a much greater appreciation for that part of his career, which was, you know, sort of the off-camera career and what he did in boardrooms, you know, in executive offices, uh, you know, rights meetings and conference rooms and things like that more so than you know, the prediction he made on Ron Paulus or, you know, some of those funny things that, you know, funny lines that he made. Well, John, I, you kind of mentioned, I feel like we could talk for hours about this topic. Such an interesting life story and great topic. John D. Lucas, haven't they suffered enough? The life and times of Bino Cook. Can't thank you enough, John. Really enjoyed it. And everyone out there, you got to get this book. Uh, where can people find the book, John? It's all, it's exclusively on Amazon right now. There's, uh, you know, we have uh, the print uh, copy of paperback and electronic ebook uh, kindle version so that's that's the marketplace that's where to go yeah i got the kindle one it's very very easy to read very good john thank you so much mike hey thank you very much for having me on i really appreciate it and uh you know merry christmas and happy holidays everyone moving forward you as well thank you chestnut hill technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the boston area and owned by bc alum CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com.